When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Alexander Etkind about the new book, Nature's Evil, A Cultural History of Natural Resources. This bold and wide-ranging book views the history of humankind through the prism of natural resources, how we acquire them, use them, value them, trade them, exploit them. History needs a cast of characters, and in this story, the leading actors are peat and hemp, grain and iron, fur and oil, and each with its own tale to tell. Well, Alexander, welcome to the show. My pleasure. So as we are going through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. <laughs> Good question. I should uh, uh, acknowledge probably that it uh, uh, pro- provided me lots of free time for checking the manuscript. I, I was basically completing the, the manuscript during the lockdown in Italy, which was uh, pretty long by uh, global standards. So I could just take time. I, I was teaching on Zoom and uh, did uh, lots of uh, walks through the um, hills near Florence and uh, completed my manuscript. Uh, I really felt that um, this unprecedented event gave some kind of some some additional um, value to my interests. Not that um, I pre- I truly predicted the pandemic, even though in uh, the um, concluding chapters of my uh, book I. Do I, do I do write a few words about the forthcoming pandemic. 
and uh, I didn't change that when I was completing the text. I just left it as is. So I, I, I cannot claim that I predicted, predict, predicted anything, but there is a kind of uh, feeling of increasing gloom and doom in the concluding chapters of my book. And of course, that matched the atmosphere of the lockdown. And you yourself, did you have to adjust your schedule, for example, traveling? Oh, yeah, I, I didn't travel at, uh, <laughs> at all. I didn't go to the office because, uh, because I was teaching from home. And that actually released uh, lots of my time for doing this work, which was pretty massive because the book is quite big. Nature's Evil, uh, Cultural History of Natural Resources. Uh, it's like 300 pages. And of course, that took uh, a lot of effort to just to just to polish the text. And uh, I'm grateful to the lockdown for giving me this time. Can you tell us more about yourself? Well, I'm uh, of Russian origin. Uh, Russian Jewish origin, to be more specific. I was born in St. Petersburg. And uh, in, when it was called Leningrad, and uh, grew up during this last Soviet decades, which was pretty gray and gruesome time in my memory. Uh, I was interested in you know, many, many, many different things and, uh, and uh, finally focused on uh, cultural history of Russia and, uh, and, uh, and Europe and the world, I guess. And um, that was uh, kind of um, typical for, for a late Soviet intellectual to start to be, be interested in culture. And... Um, also to be rejecting this kind of economic and Marxian understanding of the historical process. And uh, then, of course, you know, so many things uh, had happened and, and keep happening. Absolutely uh, unbelievable, unprecedented things, as we know. So history didn't end, and I, I think it, it will never end. And uh, for my generation, for my... Um, Compatriots, actually, this uh, the the flow of history was exceptionally fast and uh, unpredictable. It was really my my uh, historical and cultural experience and political experience. It was more like a serpentine rather than a highway. And I changed my subjects, but I, 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 I it was quite productive. I think I uh, published. Uh, now I could I could see many books in uh, in both in Russian and in English. Some of those books I wrote in uh, either in Russian or in English, and then they were translated uh, back and forth. So basically, every every book of mine uh, exists in uh, both languages. Some of them were translated into many others, um, and um, uh, I think uh, I. Uh, responded in this kind of scholarly way to the to, 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 to the experience that I had also of course to education uh, and uh, um, I spent I spent many years in the US that was mostly the 1990s uh, and then I 
Of course, I spent also about a half a half of my adult life in Russia. Uh, I taught at Cambridge uh, in the UK for about nine years. Uh, made my full career there. Uh, and then in 2013, I moved from Cambridge to, to, to Florence to a wonderful institution called the European University Institute. And now, um, uh, another eight or nine years are expiring, and I'm looking forward to moving to, to Vienna next year, uh, where I will be teaching at the Central European University. So basically, I changed my life uh, in a certain rhythm, like every eight years or nine years, I move from one place to another, from one university job to another. And not that I think it will happen indefinitely, but I'm pretty happy with that. And I hope that this sort of global vision or rather expanding vision, you know, from someone who was born in Leningrad to this uh, much larger horizon, I hope that so somehow re reflects in uh, nature's evil as well as in uh, uh, other books of mine. So my previous books were more focused on, uh, specifically on Russian and Soviet history. Uh, one of them is called Internal Colonization, Russia's Imperial Experience. Um, and in that book, I uh, looked at the imperial period of Russian history, uh, interpreting it as a uh, uh, a process of internal colonization, while colonial practices were usually imagined as distant and external to the metropolitan power, so that the, the Brits went to India, etc. Uh, and the uh, boundaries between the metropolitan uh, domains and the colonial domains were very clearly marked by blue water um, by oceans, one or two or three of them. Uh, in Russia, that was uh, mixed and intertwined and uh, the um, Russian state colonized the territory that had already been occupied, this huge uh, landmass from, uh, uh, from Central Europe to East Siberia to the Pacific uh, needed uh, recurrent uh, colonization, cultivation, uh, acculturation, and uh, uh, of course economic exploitation in uh, various ways. So, so that was uh, an, a subject of one of my books. Another book of mine called Warped Morning told the story of the um, Soviet terror, of, the, of Stalinist terror, and more specifically of cultural memory of that terror as, it, as this memory and mourning for the victims of terror was evolving through the decades, like from 1950s to the early 21st century. I also wrote a book um, on the history of psychoanalysis in Russia and the Soviet Union. And a few uh, 
maybe two, two or three other books on Russian intellectual history. And this book, uh, Nature's Evil, A Cultural History of Natural Resources, is truly global. Um, it, uh, you know, looks at this enormous subject of uh, natural resources from the start to the end, from ancient times to our era. And um, it's in comparison to some other books with which my book is competing, there are plenty. Uh, this one is, um, of course, it's it, because it's so so recent. It's very much influenced by the climate crisis and this um, increasing feeling of the uh, of the of depletion of uh, particular natural resources such as air and water, not so much uh, oil or metals or food as the depletion of the air. As I write in the preface, I say that oil will never end up, we will, we will never be, ru be running out of oil because air will end uh, sooner. And of course, we will not need oil after, we will have no air. So the feeling of, climate crisis and uh, the limits of our expansion of nature was one of the feelings that I sort of articulated in the book. And another uh, difference I think is that still, even though the book is global, I, uh, from time to time, I land back to my Russian historical material. So this book, Though global, it focuses from time to time. Uh, in, in, in all its chapters, it fo also, also focuses on specifically Russian experiences. And of course, Russia is the country of natural resources par excellence. The more land you have, the more probability is that there is something on this land or under it. Uh, that would be precious, important, and um, would provide the uh, living for the people uh, populating this land. So uh, this logic of um, um, finding a precious resource, developing it, exploiting it, exporting it, and uh, depending on one particular natural resource, uh, it's very much uh, a Russian story as well as it is increasingly a global one. So in your book, Nature's Evil, you cover a lot of excellent science and history, and let's delve into some of it. So can we start from the basics? Could you define what are resources? So you already mentioned some of them. Yes, um, resource, of course, is a strange word. It comes from a French um, word, which basically is spelled the same way. But uh, in its original, uh, in its Latin original, it means something renewable, resourcing. 
while of course in the current usage when we're talking about resources uh, uh, any kind of resource say labor resource or, or cultural resources or natural resources we mean something limited uh, that, that thing is a resource which is limited it's almost by definition but uh, natural resources are different from many others um, and I'm trying to kind of to, to account for them all. So every chapter of my book um, focuses on one particular kind uh, of natural resources, starting from grain, then I go to timber, then I go to fibers such as cotton, linen, um, and uh, uh, hemp or silk and then i go to metals and uh, i'm also, there is also a chapter on uh, an interesting group of uh, resources which i call soft drugs i i hope that we will talk with you galina about that as well and these are things like sugar tea coffee chocolate opium tobacco etc soft drugs and uh, then, of course, I switch to energy. And there are three chapters on peat, coal, and oil. And um, one of the kind of arguments of uh, my book and also sort of organizational principles of every chapter is that if we want to understand the cultural use and economic exploitation and um, the processes, uh, labor processes that are connected to a specific resource, we need to start from its natural qualities, features. Uh, they could be uh, physical or chemical, or think about metals, or they could be biological, think, think about fibers. For silk, it's, you know, it's a, a kind of zoology of the silkworms that uh, is important, say, for hemp, it's botanics of uh, the growth of a particular plant. Uh, could be a geology, of course, for metals, but without exception for every resource, you could also think about fish or fur animals or... Um, meat and milk and and much else without any exception um a, a part of this natural qualities belongs to geography uh, and geography really organizes and defines organizes the labor processes the economic trade in this resource and um, much else uh, and also defines its value so um, uh, if we're not talking about air and water, and I, I don't talk about that, I talk about it, about air a lot, about our common atmosphere, but there is no specific chapter. It's more like a general background for, for, uh, for everything else, because really we have uh, air and water everywhere where people live because 
when there is no such things, then people do not live there. But everything else, starting from very universally spread resource such as grain, and then coming to things like gold, diamonds, or oil, everything else, every, every natural resource is geographically defined by uh, its um, area uh, where it is available and many other areas where it is not. So, which makes this particular, or any particular resource uh, valuable or precious to the extent that it is available in one particular place. Uh, it could be continents, it could be one particular spot uh, on the land or in the ocean, etc. And uh, many other areas where it is not naturally available. Think, for, exa for example, about sugar, uh, uh, cane, that was the source of sugar through centuries. And due to, and this particular plant requires a unique uh, combination of natural um, um, features, um, particular climate, particular soil, particular humidity. Um, and uh, it so happened that um, the British Empire, which was uh, huge and um, um, the sun was, was never uh, set there, uh, um, spanned all over the world, had this particular resource in few islands in the uh, Atlantic. Uh, they were called sugar islands, such as Jamaica or Barbados, etc. And uh, precisely because the, these particular areas were so limited, so restricted, they were they are basically several spots on the geographical map of the world um, that provided that secured this particular resource with huge value. So that sugar uh, would, would be transported across the oceans, would be traded in on different continents, would be valued uh, as much as gold in certain periods, etc. And all this British Empire with its huge um, space and uh, having all other resources would financially depend through decades or centuries on uh, sugar trade coming from these uh, little islands. So this geography um, of uh, this area uh, 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 of the so source, the geographical um, features of the source of uh, resource is definitive for its value uh, for humanity and uh, the economic processes of transportation, trade, uh, uh, export um, that uh, is kind of, that that follows from this geography. So whenever I'm, I'm talking about a particular resource, natural resource, I, I'm starting uh, from very simple things. Um, where where uh, it was it historically located? 
what are physical or chem chemical features? Um, is it organic or non-organic? Uh, how labor-intensive was the process of extracting it? And uh, what was the geography of this extraction? So now it is extracted. Uh, it had to be transported to uh, to the, the uh, population centers where it would be consumed. But before, before this transportation, you, usually many of these resources, and um, not not all of them, but many had to be had two or more stages of processing. Primary processing, which happened right on the spot, say with sugar or with metals, uh, uh, or with timber and much else, and then or with grain. And then secondary proce processing after the transportation to the population centers. Uh, after so, and the secondary processing already prepared uh, this particular substance for human consumption and this transportation uh, is a crucial it, it doesn't really belong to the features of the of a particular resource but it defined its price defined its usage and um, uh, and was in its own turn defined determined by uh, by the geography of the resource and another geography of consumption sometimes population centers tended to move to the resource uh, that for instance happened to uh, with coal mines so major population centers in uh, in europe but also in asia and in um, northern america were developing near coal mines because coal is so, so bulky so massive but also so so um, valuable for industrial processes that this new huge industries of the industrial revolution and uh, the later periods were moving along with with the people with the labor people with the populations were moving closer to coal mines but many other resources um, were just transported to the people who would be consuming that. Um, so the transportation uh, is a big part of my book. And again, I'm um, explaining these uh, processes um, by uh, natural qualities of resources, by geography of its sourcing. So in what ways do resources get tied up in the human history? So you already mentioned the British Empire that had many places around the world where it uh, sourced its uh, uh, different uh, commodities. And how does it tie up with our social structures and maybe wars? Uh, huge question. So one thing about these uh, resources, particularly about those which are precious, rare, and uh, much of this precious and rare things happen to be pretty distant from, from population centers, from the places where they were needed, where they were consumed. 
So this particular spots, you could imagine it as a plantation of sugar or cotton or a forest with particular um, uh, rare but highly usable uh, kind of timber or as an oil field. Um, this, but but the, the, the story actually started uh, very early, say, uh, we're talking about, uh, we could be talking about uh, as early periods as Stone Age. So the um, our, our contemporary archaeologists are able to identify the source of stone, would it be, say, obsidian or something else, uh, which of which uh, stone axe or stone hammer or another tool that archaeologists find uh, was uh, made. And uh, it, it, it happened so that uh, there are very few, there were in the Stone Age, there were very few places on the European landmass where the proper obsidian was uh, mined or uh, extracted in quarries. And these obsidian tools, so they, they underwent primary processing. Uh, and then they would travel with, the, with people who use them for hundreds of miles. So that archaeologists find these obsidian tools really far from that Spanish quarry or that quarry in central Poland or very few uh, other places where there, were, there was a proper obsidian. So this uh, pieces of stone that were strong enough and uh, had sharp ends and uh, was possible to proceed for making, say, say an axe or later a knife, uh, were highly precious, meaning that people were exchanging them for furs or for um, um, herds uh, of sheep uh, or for some other. Uh, so, so one resource uh, is always exchanged for another one, but that resource is precious, that is rare and uh, also distant from, uh, from people. And if it is rare, if it is uh, located in a sort of in a on a limited spot uh, on the surface of the earth, of course, um, uh, we're talking about later periods than obsidian, but then say conflicts, um, wars uh, uh, were waged and in fact are waged still for this particular sports uh, on the earth. So that someone who really got this sport, who could affirm his power, uh, had to protect the sport and uh, from, from the rivals from uh, other king kingdoms or empires that also claimed um, 
their rights uh, on uh, or, or desires uh, to um, obtaining the sport. But then, precisely because this sport, you could imagine it as a, a particular island uh, or a particular uh, mountain valley, uh, which had, say, silver, uh, or there, there, there were decades or centuries when a particular mountain in Southern America provided silver for all the world, for uh, at least for all Europe. Um, and of course, the, the, this particular situation secures uh, value of sugar or value of silver. Imagine if silver was available, were available everywhere. It had, like grain, it still would have had a value, but this value would be entirely different. And now the, that one who owns that particular mine, that particular island, has a wonderful position for expanding his power, his capital, his influence, his trading advantage. And this kind of power is called monopoly. So something that is compact could be monopolized. Something that, because of natural qualities, features, um, uh, is located on a particular spot, could be monopolized, could be owned, protected, and uh, monopolized by the owner. Meaning that, say, the prices for this particular resource would be defined by the extractor rather than by the consumer. This is monopolistic markets are very particular things. And uh, that, that's actually is pretty well known, but I'm trying to uh, argue using one example after another that this uh, propensity for mon monopolizing a resource Yes, we know its economic uh, uh, consequences, but we also need to acknowledge a very simple thing that this propensity, this ability to monopolize is defined by the natural qualities of a resource, say by its geography. Yes, and then uh, of course, we that's a, a recurrent story which started from, uh, from uh, the from Stone Age, and I think it uh, comes all the way to our era when we are reading the, the news about the gas, gas prices in Europe, for instance, right now. Um, uh, we are dealing with, 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 with the same phenomenon. That one who owns a particular resource that is unavailable for natural reasons in a different place or in other places on the earth is able to control the market, to define the price, to claim uh, monopolistic power. And uh, the, uh, even in the times of peace, the uh, effects are enormous. Uh, they're even more dramatic in the times of war when this particular power over a resource providing spot would be challenged by by force and of course would be protected by the owner 
uh, furiously because that is his source of uh, of living. So um, this particular geographical and uh, other natural qualities, configuration of natural qualities of particular resource. Um, I think, and I argue, was responsible for the development of early states, then on the development of trade, then on the development of um, empires, including modern empires, and uh, we are coming, of course, closer and closer to the world that we live in. It's truly fascinating how resources are so tightly uh, wound up in uh, the survival of uh, an emergence of civilizations. Right. Uh, yeah, this obsidian story, of course, is uh, re remarkable, but also um, uh, very important is the uh, story of uh, grain and cereals. There is a wonderful observation, which was, as far as I know, first made by the American anthropologist James Scott about cereals, uh, about wheat, but also it's ap applicable to, to other cereals, such as rye and some others. Um, imagine a field of wheat. So we see myriads of um, individual plants and uh, grain is developing on on, 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 the, on the top of every plant and the miracle and it's it's a natural miracle which of course was created by man at some point in collaboration with nature the miracle is that all these mirrors of plants would ripen simultaneously so that all these grains um myriads of grains would come to the same condition in the same day, the same week. So if the if the whole field is planted um, at one moment in time, then it will ripen, you know, months later, also simultaneously, as if every plant has an internal watch, biological watch inserted into it and probably and I said as if, but that's true that it does have something like that. Uh, otherwise, we can we would never understand how uh, how do they know where, where when to mature, when to ripen, and uh, that is highly unusual. Say uh, uh, fruits like apples or animals like whatever like. Um, cows uh, or uh, many other things they don't do not really have this uh, particular synchronicity that was created by the by uh, millenniums millennia of uh, artificial selection and uh, cereals were uniquely uh, good for this selection while say many other plants were not and uh, then uh, of course, one, one, one needs to ask, so what? So why uh, wouldn't this 
particular peasant or farmer or this agricultural tribe, why, why, why did they need this simultaneity? They could just come uh, as we come to an apple tree and uh, you know, we would just uh, pick uh, that apple or that, piece, that, that, that particular spot of a green field that is ready. And the answer is really striking that um, the answer belongs to James Scott, that um, the one who really needed that simultaneity is, was not the peasant, not the farmer, but the tax, but the tax inspector, the representative of the, of the state, because these agricultural states uh, were fully dependent on uh, on uh, on grain uh, on the on a particular part of the crops that um, the tax inspector would withdraw and 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 move and transport and store in the grain storage, and this grain storage would be the material base for the power of the prince of the king of the of the strongman. And of course, when a taxman, when this representative of the state is coming to, to, the, to the field, he doesn't want it to be like an apple tree so that he would come for every, you know, grain, you know, uh, for, for weeks or months observing the ripening process. He, he wanted this, this field to be ripening at once so that this process of artificial selection was responding not to the needs of the people who, of course, needed cereals to, you know, to, to feed themselves, but they did not need this particular feature of cereals that is so hugely important and, and striking for, for just for thinking about that. Uh, so this artificial selection was, was, was done by the people, by, by farmers, for the sake and under the, under the supervision of uh, of the state, that was the material base for the formation of the early agricultural state. You've given uh, a few very excellent examples of tangible or physical resources. Now, what about uh, more uh, more of the less tangible, I suppose, uh, resources like knowledge or energy. How did we come to that? And how do we understand these? Well, let's talk first about energy. And then please remind me your question about knowledge, because that, that brings us really to an entirely different um, continent, I would say, or maybe a planet. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, energy, of course, is material. And... Um, there are certain substances starting from firewood that uh, gives energy, uh, like warmth to the early people, or then, of course, um, um, energy to their furnaces if they were making metal, or energy to their uh, machines. Uh, if we're talking about the early industries created by the industrial revolution, steam engines, uh, energy to our cars that, as we know very well, is provided by fossil fuel. Um, 
just think about all this. Uh, um, um, tremendously important parts of human life that would be entirely impossible without a source of concentrated energy. See, uh, uh, a building or towns or fortresses, etc. just anything made of bricks. So bricks, of course, come from clay. And clay is pretty uh, widespread, though that could be some you know, particular clays that, uh, particular bricks, bricks that needed a special clay. But this clay had to be burned. And that needed huge amounts of energy. So all these brick and mortar towns in whatever, in England and France, all over Europe, all over Asia, of course, um, and um, everywhere else. Either we are talking about ancient Rome, you remember those huge brick constructions, or about Middle Ages, or about modern era. So that needed huge, huge, huge amounts of energy. And this energy was provided either by firewood, as it happened actually in um, uh, the in ancient Rome, for instance, or in Middle Ages, so that uh, the early towns were growing um, with the population growth. And this growth was limited not by the availability of food, but by the availability of firewood. For a simple reason, just firewood is heavier um, per uh, calorie, per, per necessary, per, per, per Per, per, per particular purpose than, than food. So food could be delivered. But fiber, so, so people go, going from the town to the country for getting firewood, they um, destroy one forest under another, they, it goes in circles. And then very soon they come to the situation in which they, can, they, they have to go that far that they cannot deliver the firewood back to their town. And then development of Roman cities or medieval cities in Europe would suffocate, would just stop because of the lack of energy. But then at some point, and that's a very interesting process and uh, relatively less known, where of course we have lots of experience with firewood, everyone, or almost everyone. I'm not sure that the future generations uh, uh, would have that much experience with uh, fireplaces or chimneys as uh, <laughs> Galina or, or I have. That would be probably forbidden very soon to just fire and to just burn, burn um, uh, a piece of firewood for climate reasons. But at some point, people uh, realized that they actually could burn the dirt from under their feet. And that's, that was the discovery of peat. And probably that happened pretty early uh, in, the, in Mesopotamia, all, that, all those bricks um, that went to Mesopotamian towns. Uh, there, there were not much firewood around, but there was a lot, lots of peat. And uh, uh, the example that I really was really fascinated 
uh, about uh, is um, the low countries of Europe, the Netherlands uh, and uh, some adjacent lands, which, uh, which whole history was dependent on this peat production and uh, th this extracting peat uh, changed the full landscape of say, Holland or Belgium. That's absolutely uh, um, exciting stories to tell, but also in some parts of England, particularly in Western England, in Norfolk, this, the famous Norfolk Broads, for instance, we, we, we think a tourist comes there and thinks it is a natural part of the um, East, uh, East English landscape. In fact, it was fully created by, by, uh, by uh, the peat extraction and burning peat, because when people dig peat out of the marsh and then um, burn it so that the, 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 the firm substance, so peat consists of 90% of water. So first it ha has, has to be uh, dried before it could be burned. And then, so steam goes into the air, then smoke goes into the air. Uh, then uh, so much of energy is released and, and much of emissions, of course, as well, but they didn't think about that. But what happened is that um, the, where, where there was peat, there is just plain water coming from the sea or coming from the uh, river, coming from the marsh. And uh, the, uh, by burning peat through centuries, the Dutch effectively decreased the level of the of the surface by uh, a couple of meters, which was responsible for floods, which led to, to floods and then construction of dikes and this eternal uh, fight with nature, which also people nowadays believe is a part of this natural landscape but in fact was created by, by man's effort. And of course, now, nowadays we have uh, the most striking example of all, our burning of oil and natural gas that creates these emissions that we are now realizing how dangerous and detrimental uh, this process is, but this, but it is not new. So we, we also think while reading the newspapers um, that this is an entirely new, very modern, very recent process, this emissions coming from the uh, burning of fossil fuel and the limits. So the, the scale of course is pretty new, but the, the limits that comes from nature that like, like nature sets, provides us with these resources, but also it sets limits, uh, which we cannot possibly transcend. And this idea of limits connected to every, basically every resource, but also, but particularly so every energy, every source of energy uh, is pretty ancient. And it's easier to understand these limits if we're talking about firewoods, about you know, depletion of forests again uh, around the medieval cities, or if we're talking about the burning of peat, which 
brings the floods and um, things like that. So then how did we arrive to the knowledge and expertise economy that we have uh, nowadays? Yeah, knowledge is crucial for, you know, it's absolutely indispensable for, for the simplest um, act of human activity proceeding that obsidian. For instance, uh, there were people who had this knowledge and people who had not, and of course, any actual product of labor combines both things. It combines the raw material. I'm, I'm sitting now um, uh, on a chair and there is a table on which my computer stands. And there are, you know, so my chair is made of raw materials and my computer is made of hundreds of different elements, ingredients. Um, but also labor that uh, proceeds these materials, like my chair consists of timber, but there is a very a highly qualified labor that was also applied to the timber in order to make a chair. So these two components is, I truly, it's a very simple idea, but they are universal for any product, any, any, any thing that we enjoy, any product that we create. Uh, the, the same goes actually to services such as whatever hospitality service. We understand very easily if we're talking about food in, in, in the restaurant, it also depends on the raw materials, say seafood, etc. But knowledge economy or computational services or financial services that all requires energy say financial services is increasingly a big client of um, um, energy providers. And this energy, where it comes from in the final account, from the burning coal or natural gas or uh, oil. Uh, apart from the renewables or nuclear energy, which of course is still a minor part of that energy that is coming right now into, into my computer while we're talking. So uh, it's an illusion that say a knowledge economy, uh, even it's in its you know most spectacular aspects, is independent of nature. It is connected to nature through this energy flows and much, and in fact, much else. But uh, I uh, do not believe that say, labor, human labor, is a resource in the same way as in the same meaning as say coal or air is a resource. A grain or medieval four, um, they are they they were and they the these are all resources that are truly uh, exhaustible. See uh, the medieval Russians, they just exterminated the sables in Siberia. Or see later uh, in the 18th century, they exterminated in the early 19th century, sea otters uh, on Alaska. So that they exterminated, some other people uh, exterminated the Atlantic court. 
so, so some of these resources they could actually be depleted many other resources they would never be depleted because either because there are there is a lot of them or because people are just not able to use all of them as it would happen to coal and oil but labor and knowledge are um, unlimited so people you know people could uh always could do more could do better could use the natural sources of energy in more and more efficient way could create renewable sources of energy that still need lots of raw materials as we know very well they are just more efficient in terms of both of the resource and the result of um, of the energy proceeding meaning the raw material and then emissions so the labor or knowledge or technology um, or information and other sources they are unlimited they are very different from um, those naturally limited sources of our existence that are called natural resources that's really interesting because we have the departments which are called human resources. All right. Yeah, yeah. We, we're, we're playing with uh, words, you know, what one could say that our language is a resource and that would be, you know, probably right. But I, I believe that's a metaphorical way of using the term. But all, all our words are metaphors. And as I said, resources are very, or say, raw material is a very sort of. Um, deceptive term because uh, those materials that became really usable and really precious really possible to transport and export and sell they were dry they were you know they were proceeded from raw or from wet uh, to to dry and that was true like for cord or for fur or for peat so the first thing that had to happen with many of this resources during the primary processing also the same was true about sugar all about uh, flour they had to be uh, dried and then they are not raw they are not wet anymore then they they are, they are tradable and that uh, so the, the 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 primary processing the kind of acquisition of value or attribution of value uh, comes with this process of drying Anyway, um, our words, of course, uh, uh, and concepts are metaphorical, but it's also a, a, a duty of a scholar to define the words in a, in a way that works through his further usage of these words. And uh, I just say that, okay, we, we have labor resources, we have, we're talking about human resources, but uh, I am talking about natural resources that I define in a particular way. Now thinking about the bigger picture and something that you already alluded to that environmental issues are on everybody's mind. So what significance do resources play in uh, our current environmental debate? Um, huge or probably uh, it's, it's, it's definitive really where, where all, all these debates uh, address fossil fuel. 
in one way or another, but, but usually it's very explicit. And when we're talking about carbon tax, let's see, the European Union will start a charge uh, whenever any um, product made of raw materials using energy, etc. So it, it is passing the borders of the European Union. Uh, it will be a carbon tax will be charged, which would uh, be proportionate to the uh, amount of emissions that were created while this particular product, say a car or a computer or whatever, uh, a pair of jeans was created. Um, and this car carbon, uh, so these emissions, of course, where the, do they come from? They come mo mostly uh, uh, in the process due to the transformation of energy. So that gas, natural gas was burned in order to make these genes or uh, to make the fertilizers, uh, which were crucial for making the scent, scent, scent of grain um, or fuel was, uh, uh, say oil was needed for creating this particular uh, plastic thing that is a part of my computer. Um, so uh, fossil fuel is absolutely crucial. Fossil fuel is there by far the most important source of emissions that pollute the, our atmosphere and deprive us in the nearest future of our air. But of course, uh, our, our technologies, uh, all these technological miracles that we enjoy, they also have a power to save fuel uh, and therefore save emissions. And sometimes they, these new technologies, they are doing the same thing more efficiently, but sometimes they have a much higher power to provide us with alternative ways of doing things that really do not need that fuel or that emissions. Say right now, we, Galina, you, you, Galina and I were talking, we're using Zoom. So that, of course, there is some energy that even this very efficient process of communication still needs. Every second there is, there, there is some, some energy so somewhere, a particular you know, an amount of natural gas or, or similar things have been burned while we're talking for the sake of our talking. But imagine uh, if there were no Zoom and before the pandemic, like you wanted to do such an interview and we would meet, we would just, I would, would meet somewhere in London or in Paris or in Florence and I would have to fly or you will fly to me and we will, you know, and then I will drive a car or take a cab and we will meet in a restaurant or in an office. And uh, the amounts of fuel that we were born and emissions that we would produce just in order to just to sit together and talk would be pretty, pretty big. So all this uh, fuel, all this, you know, tons of emissions and also barrels of fuel uh, have been saved by uh, us while we're talking on Zoom. And that's, uh, I think, it's an interesting example of how people can do things 
in a different way, not just in a more efficient, but in a radically different way that saves uh, us and possibly save the planet. And uh, I, I believe that is one of the unforeseen uh, effects of the pandemic, uh, collateral effects, is this uh, remote, all these remote processes that we uh, we have been very, in a very, very, very fast historical time. Very quickly, we acquired these necessary skills, how to teach on Zoom, how to study on, on Zoom, how to how to do office uh, work remotely, how to control certain technologies, uh, you know, from uh, from home. And that, I think, is a way uh, to the future. So are you optimistic about humanity's ability to manage its resources in the future? Well, that's difficult. I, yes, I'm, I'm basically I'm, I'm an optimist, but also I understand how difficult these things are, how much resistance these changes produce. And this resistance is not just a matter of um, habit, like, you know, it's not just a kind of natural, natural conservatism that, you know, certain people, they are just used to do things in a particular way. It's difficult for them to to change these ways and it takes generations for changing these ways. That's one thing, but it's a relatively minor thing. But there are also, you know, so many people and institutions and corporations that make their profit on uh, on making things in a certain way. These are energy companies or oil providers or whole states uh, that there is a big chapter in my book about petro states and i'm trying to i was trying to summarize this material that comes from latin america and um, also from russia very much from russia because uh, the post-soviet russia has turned into a petro state and even even though this is not really a kind of the popular popular view on um, this political um, system. Um, so this resistance, this uh, uh, unwillingness to change the common ways has multiple sources. For many, many people, it is just, you know, the, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. We're depriving them by, by, by talking now on Zoom, we are depriving certain people, certain institutions, certain corporations of their habitual profits. We're, we're providing profits to some other uh, institutions or people or corporations. So this, um, uh, what, 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 what we call optimism means essentially a huge rare organization restructuration kind of just a, this huge machine of humanity would change its direction going into some less known but uh, possibly um, easier and more human and definitely more efficient um, directions.
That's really great to hear. So what discoveries along your journey to writing your book, Nature's Evil, surprise you the most? Oh, that's difficult to say. I had, uh, I mean, my book is full of kind of facts and f like fact-finding missions that I did mostly in the libraries, of course. And I worked in uh, several excellent libraries uh, across Europe before I was locked uh, by a lockdown in my uh, home near Florence and um, had to proceed all that in this way of uh, primary process. But uh, many of these facts were, uh, fun I, were exciting and many of them I did not know at all. Like uh, there is a big chapter on fur trade, which actually is very much focused on um, Russian history. And um, this uh, gra gradual shift from gray squirrel, that was the source of income for the medieval Novgorod to Siberian sable, that was the source of income for the, for the Moscow principality. And then to see orders in Alaska, which was very much the source of income for the imperial court in Petersburg. So, <laughs> Um, that, that was a kind of discovery because Russian histor historians of Russia, they didn't really look at this very simple, very material uh, things where, say, you know, where, where this uh, luxury came from, where these collections in the Hermitage Museum came from, how, how, how they were paid. They were paid basically by, by, by convertible ruble, which was secured by, by the skins of sea otters far away on the opposite end of the globe in Alaska. Uh, and of course, by grain that, uh, that Russian peasants produced in, in Southern Russia or contemporary Ukraine, which is another story. So the, the, there were many discoveries like that, you know, connected to very simple things like tar or potash or, or coal and of course very much uh, to oil. The story of peat was very striking to me because, uh, because it provided this really fantastic story, like a parable, the, the story of Dutch peat. It's a beautiful parable of, um, of many things at once. That's that great civilization, the, you know, the, the low countries of the golden era uh, the civilization that produced Rembrandt and, uh, and much, much, much else um, was so so dependent on this uh, material source of energy right under the feet and extracting this energy that was crucial for building the towns and ships and all that. Um, extracting this peat uh, led to an ecological catastrophe and you know, actual disasters for, the, for this very civilization. And there are many, uh, at least I would say, there are some other discoveries of the same nature in my book. Yourself, if you had to give up one of the commodity or resource, what would that be? To give up or do you mean give up? 
uh, give up for like uh, this, if if I would like the humanity to give up a particular resource. Let's say yeah. Let's mm -hmm. say we cannot have chocolate anymore or coffee. Do you th do you think you could survive without those? I could survive with the. I love I love coffee and uh, and also friends. <laughs> I love uh, chocolate very much. I could survive without that, but um, that would not save very much of our planet. Things like of course milk or meat that's much more serious. And um, um, I summarize you know the findings of. Uh, dozens of uh, contemporary scholars, um, ecologists and ag agricultural experts who basically say that there's this meat-based high-calorie uh, high uh, food is um, unsustainable. And um, whatever people would do with renewable sources of energy and uh, water and all that, uh, People, uh, humanity will have to change their consumption uh, habits, uh, going vegan, or you know, uh, to, to, to some extent, or at least making, say, meat, making every steak way more expensive. That's, and I, I'm sure that will happen, actually. No, nobody would ban a steak or other meat products, but there will be... Uh, they, they will be subject to something like luxury task, uh, tax. So we don't really feel any kind of despair when we buy, when I buy a, a bottle of alcohol and I pay like triple price or the price that would be 20 times or 100 times actually could be more, more uh, expensive than the production cost of this bottle of whiskey. And the same would happen to a piece of steak or, um, or fish. And that, of course, would radically reduce uh, the consumption and would spread the circle, uh, would, would, would develop, you know, the uh, meat surrogate, surrogates made of Jane uh, or some other plant, plant um, uh, based products. And uh, of course, that we, we, we said that, that we see that already happening to milk. Many people, uh, including myself, I, I have switched to um, to whatever oat milk or almond milk, and uh, somehow uh, there is no pain in this switch. So there are there, there are people for who, whom it is painful. I, I didn't feel that. I, I, I it, this kind of taste comes with the usage. Like the more you drink. The new new kind of surrogate products, the more I think you like them, and this is another part of the traditional ways of trade and consumption. Anyway, there is this huge um, transition, as they call it, um, also a little bit deceptively, because transition is really hard. It, it means going from point A. To point B, while in our current transition, we know the point A very well, but we don't really know the point B. It's a kind of open-ended, a creative process. And some people are taking it easier than others. Some corporations are more able to change their ways, and some countries 
are more eager to do that and some others will suffer a lot well we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project oh well uh i'm still uh, kind of do, doing uh you know so, some some of the stuff connected to that book uh, it will be a few research articles we have just published uh, uh an article uh i published it to, together with my um, doctoral two, two 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 doctoral students from ukraine and uh, it's a, an oral history of uh, Ukrainian uh, oil men who were traveling to uh, West Siberia in the 1970s, 1980s to develop the Siberian oil. And so they were traveling from West Ukraine to West Siberia uh, in a shuttle way. So they went, spent like for years and decades, that was the lifestyle. They spent two, two weeks with the families in West Ukraine, then two weeks in the marshes of West Siberia, the, you know, the, uh, the digging oil wells or, or constructing directs, things like that, and then back by uh, the Aeroflot flights to across, across Eurasia to West Ukraine and then back. And uh, we found uh, several dozens of old men in West Ukraine who who just told us these stories? It's called oral history, um, and uh, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, so this article has already been published, but I'm also working on something very ambitious, and uh, it's open-ended and a kind of creative process. And I'm absolutely not showing the success of it. Uh, together with some. Uh, colleagues from all over Europe, we are creating a new university. It was, it's called uh, the University of New Europe. And uh, it will be uh, uh, catering for the uh, people from Eastern Europe, from places such as Belarus and Ukraine and uh, Russia, who are the politically or for economic reasons, they cannot afford either politically pressed. Many of, some of them are refuge, refugees, uh, or for economic reasons, they cannot afford a proper European education. And we want to mix this crowd with West European students and create a new university in which um, everything will be like 50-50, you know, Professors 50-50 from West Europe, Western Europe and Eastern Europe, and students will be 50-50 from Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And um, it will be located in one of the countries, one of the members of the European Union, which borders uh, either Russia or Belarus. And we're working on that. We don't know will we succeed or not, and, but I'm pretty much involved in this project. That sounds super exciting. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Where? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, my book is available on Amazon and basically everywhere. <laughs> 
in uh, England, it's uh, they they sell it in water stones and uh, and some other big chain uh, bookstores. But of course, Amazon uh, everywhere in the world is uh, is a source where you can buy my book uh, on paper or, um, or Kindle or another kind of electronic version that you prefer. So it's uh, widely available and it will be, you know, in print or on sale for, I think, <laughs> for, for many years or maybe for a couple of decades. And about, you know, my work, my articles, uh, if you just Google, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, uh, in English, I'm also active on Facebook in Russian. But um, you could easily Google me and find my recent or not so recent articles available online. Thank you so much for joining me today and for this insightful discussion. Thanks, Galina, for choosing my book as a subject of your, uh, of, 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 of your hosting on this uh, highly successful platform. And I hope to see you again when I will finish another book. Oh, yes, for sure. We'll be happy <laughs> to have you again.